Hello, I'm Jim Cuno, president of the J. Paul Getty Trust. Welcome to Art and Ideas, a podcast in which I speak to artists, conservators, authors, and scholars about their work. We have two galleries. We have 47 odd works to choose from, and we're just trying to figure out the themes that we really want to focus in on. In the setting of an exhibition, you can really only choose one or two and, and do those in depth. In this episode, I speak with Tom Lerner and Pia Gottschaller of the Getty Conservation Institute and Andrew Perchek of the Getty Research Institute about the exhibition they're preparing for the Getty-funded regional project Pacific Standard Time, LALA, Los Angeles, Latin America, to be launched in fall 2017. Several months ago, I met with Tom, Pia, and Andrew at an art warehouse facility about 25 miles southeast of the Getty in Compton, where the works are being housed. This exhibition features experimental, geometric, abstract paintings and reliefs made by mid-20th century avant-garde artists working in Argentina and Brazil. The paintings and reliefs are part of the celebrated Patricia Phelps de Cisneros collection, founded in 1970. Some have been shown in exhibitions elsewhere in the U.S. and Europe, but none has been the subject of sustained technical analysis. That is the subject of our exhibition. What modern materials were used to make these works? How have the materials changed over time? And how does their materiality relate to the modernist ambitions of their makers? For these were purposely experimental modernist works, comprising new compositions made of new forms and new materials for a new age. Tom, Pia, and Andrew have been examining the works for many months already. I thought it would be interesting to check in with them from time to time to see how their exhibition is progressing. This episode, the first in a series on the making of this exhibition, will focus on the questions the exhibition seeks to answer. We started by talking about the title of the exhibition, which at that point was still in flux. This happens all the time. Exhibitions often have many titles before the final one is selected. Well, the working title that we have come up with so far is The Material of Form, because one of the things that we're focusing on is the materiality of the works. Okay, well, why is it a working title? We thought that we would like to have a little bit of flexibility to see what we're actually finding while we're doing the research, so that might have an influence on the title. Uh-huh. Andrew, what about you? There's been a lot of interest recently in how much industrialization factored into the art production in Argentina and Brazil during this era. And one of the thoughts was to highlight that in the exhibition and the research project. However, when Pia started doing the research and looking at the technical analysis, particularly of the Argentinian works, she found that instead of being synthetic paints, industrial house paints, car paint, that sort of, they were pretty much traditional artist oils. Isn't that right, Pia? Yeah, especially in the period that we're focusing on in Argentina. So from 46 to 50 to 54, the majority of the artists that we're looking at worked with oil paints. And only a few of them later on, one of um, whom is Rodfus, who we also have an exhibition, they then started using house paints. But the the group of artists that really did use house paints beginning in the um, 50s, early 50s, were the Brazilians. So there's a big difference between those two countries. So if if the two points of the title, let's say, at this point, the working title, materiality and industrialization. Industrialization by itself might go away, but materiality remains because it's it's as much a a scientific investigation into the materials of the works of art. Is that right, Tom? Absolutely. Um, And I think one of the things we're drawing on have been a couple of other um, exhibitions that have been at the Getty that the 
GCI and GRI have been involved with, where we, we have been exploring um, some of these issues that Pierre and I and Andrew live with every day about how artists, the choice of materials, how it has an effect on appearance and, and, and um, that kind of stuff through surface, through gloss, through color, through the way materials are being used, um, but isn't immediately obvious perhaps to a general public. And I think we're finding with these works um, from Brazil and Argentina, perhaps particularly from Brazil, where the surface is so key that if you look at these works of art um, in a book or publication, even online, you can see the color and the shape and the form, but you have no idea of what the surface is like. And a lot of these artists play with, with gloss a lot, with texture, uh, even very subtle textures where the same colors used, just the brushes being applied in, 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 in different directions. And it's amazing the difference when you start to see these paintings in the flesh. So we're just trying to draw attention to some of those things uh, as part of this project. Right. So in the last 15 years or so, there have been a number of exhibitions that have looked at Latin American modernism and actually museums in the United States that have begun to acquire uh, examples of Latin American modernism. But your focus on the materiality is going to be something new. I mean, that's what's intrigued you about this. Yes, that's absolutely right. There are basically no publications on what these paintings are made with, how artists approach their making. There's one uh, conservator in Argentina who's interviewed a lot of the artists that we're looking at in Argentina. Um, but other than that, there's, there's basically nothing. And so um, we feel that we could really start from scratch and look at the at an entire period and at a you know, big part of a continent from, from a completely new perspective to see how much of what they were doing was completely their own thing. They had nothing to do with what was going on in America and in, in North America and in Europe at the time. And how maybe some things actually coincide because they were looking towards Paris and, and towards Switzerland for a number of reasons. And how crucial this kind of research is was really brought home to us. We, we went together to the Leisure Clark retrospective at MoMA last year. As we it was a Brazilian artist. Brazilian artist, uh, Leisha Clark and Helio Ortizica, probably the two most famous Brazilian artists of the era. And this was the first major American retrospective of Leisha Clark's work. And as we were looking around, there were five identical works on the wall, meaning five works in a series but when you looked at the wall labels, they were listed as being made of five different materials. Because over the years, people had just, you know, written something on the back or put a label, and that just got sort of written into history without anybody actually doing... So they were the same material, but mistakenly identified as five different materials? That's correct. And that's one of the reasons we knew that this kind of technical analysis that Pia and Tom and others are doing was so crucial because it had never been done and, and these mistakes then are circulated out in the world. Yeah. This is quite common, the sort of, and, and mislabeling sounds a bit cruel, but it's, it's, it's just, it's very, very hard to know exactly what paint is on a work of art. I mean, you, you rely perhaps on the artist writing something on a label or something. But, what, but if that hasn't been written down, um, the kind of sources you go to are sort of documentary t sources, so you can try and find evidence of, of paints that were, were, were being used. If the artist is still alive, you can certainly talk to them. Uh, with this group of artists, you know, the vast majority have, have, have passed away. But the, but the um, aspect that we rely on so much now is, is scientific analysis. The GCI, um, as, as you know, has been 
involved for a long time in, 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 a, in a project on modern paints, the analysis of modern paints. And we've had to develop with partners around the world um, accurate ways of detecting the different paint types. Um, and so, some distinctions are very straightforward and others are very complicated. We have um, a wonderful opportunity to work with a team in uh, Argentina, in Buenos Aires, and also another team in Brazil who are their teams are composed of art historians, a conservator, scientists, and they are going to work on works of art that are in their own country in private collections and in museums. So they're also going to take samples from these works. The idea being that in the end, we can come up with a large database of information that we have collected and that they have collected from other works that compare to ours in because they're from the same artists or the same period, so that in the end we'll have a big comprehensive view of what was being done at the time. Okay. Tom, tell us, when we, earlier we mentioned, or you mentioned, that a change had taken place in your understanding of the questions of the exhibition, which is to say the presumption was that the industrial materials were used, industrial paints in particular were used, perhaps because that's what was available, perhaps because this is a time in the 30s and 40s when there was a great industrialization of South America. Uh, and then you discover that that's not in fact the case. That in fact, these are artist materials and not industrials, or at least they're more often art, artist materials more often than you thought they might be. Tell us about the moment in which you discovered that, yeah. and also the context for considering the materiality, that is the industrial context for considering materiality. Well, I'll make a few general comments about this, because we're just bang in the middle of actually determining all the paint that are on the works of art and actually what that means because of, often you, you you might find a material like oil that could be on a painting it doesn't necessarily mean it's uh, from a tube paint there are all kind of things where oil can creep into paints for example oil was used in in house paints in the early part what of the kind 20th of century well linseed oil is the most the commonly used oil oils, yeah, yeah uh, because because you actually the important thing about oil is that it dries and and most of the oils out there are not very good dryers linseed being the best dryer uh things can be added to any paint to speed up the drying ke chemicals and etc but um but the point is, is, is that it, this takes a long time to actually get the answers that we're looking for. And I think one of the things that came up very quickly was this realization that on a lot of the Argentinian works we're looking at, which are mainly from the 1940s, uh, oil comes up time and time again. So we're just now trying to put that into the context because there are a few things in play here. One of which um, is that even though this was a great period of industrialization, in the paint world, and I'm basing this on the experience I have with the Western markets, the US and the European paint markets, really the big change in, in paints came in the 1950s. It's, it's the late 40s, 50s, exactly where you start to see, for example, alkyd paints, which is now the sort of one, the very, very uh, predominant sort of paint for house paints you'd paint your, your door frame or your window with. Um, we did lots of work uh, when I worked at the Tate, uh, looking at Picasso's uh, paints, where he was a very famous user of, of house paints throughout his career. And when you start to analyze them, and we know they're all house paints um, in, in certain cases, it's only in the mid-50s when you see alkyd start to appear analytically. So there, there is this... Is that, is that an industrial term or a chemical term? Alkyd yeah. is, is both. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a very uh, short chemical name, which most chemicals, as you probably know, are very hard to repeat. They're very, very long. But it's, it, um, it, a it actually comes from uh, a combination of, of, of what this paint is, which is a polyester-based paint, uh, where you have an, an alcohol, ALC, group, and an acid, ID, uh, combining to form a polyester-type paint, which is modified with oil and other, th other things too. But the alkyd term was 
coined in the very late 1920s, I, I think, by the, by the inventor of this process. But it took a long time for these materials to really work their way. It was actually post-World War II where you start to see them really make their way into actual paint products that people were buying. One thing that also makes it complicated or not that easy for us to be able to say this is oil, this is um, or, you know, a tube oil paint, this is a house paint, is that sometimes like we have one work by an artist called Judici Lawand, and a Brazilian artist who's still alive. She's the only one, along with uh, Tomas Maldonado, who's still alive. And she wrote on a work that she made in the 50s on the back that she painted it with industrial paint. But when we did the analysis, we found that it's based on oil. So even though the artist might be thinking that she's being very progressive at this moment because she's using house paint, in effect, she might not have been all that progressive because it was still oil-based. And then but what we're finding with the Brazilian artists is that we're getting the full range of, of synthetic paints, um, the, the, the sort of main types of paints being used in industrial paints, in car paints, particularly house paints, um, which is always nice where, where you do your initial analysis and you find everything from... Um, you know, acrylic to polyvinyl acetate to nitrocellulose to alkyd. To, so, there, so there's a whole bunch of things that we now need to pick apart um, and, uh, yeah, come up with some answers which, which we can be proud about and publish and actually say this, this artist used these paints in this way. Yeah, well, let's, let's start to look at some of the paintings and some of the sculptures or reliefs that we're looking at uh, because very clearly they are geometric abstraction and they, they do bear evidence of having seen and understood what was happening in Paris and what was happening in the Netherlands with Mondrian and Van Duisburg, for example. How did they even know that? It's uh, one of uh, the, the questions that I think uh, the art historians are still trying to figure out. The only bit of story that I've found so far about how they first discovered uh, Mondrian in Buenos Aires in 1945-46 is of uh, Lidi Prati, who was married to Tomas Maldonado. Tomas Maldonado was, I think one could say, the intellectual leader of the concrete artists in Buenos Aires at that time. And so his wife at one point uh, said that she had gone on a regular basis to, um, to libraries and to shops where you could buy magazines. And she was leafing through one of the magazines. Unfortunately, we don't know which one. And she saw a black and white reproduction of Mondrian. Now, the fact that the Argentine artist, for, uh, uh, at least until 1948, when Maldonado first goes to Europe, he was the first one of them to go, they were entirely reliant on um, on perceiving Mondrian through black and white reproductions. They were, they were not aware of his writings and they were certainly not aware of, his, of the spiritual dimension of his work. So when Maldonado first goes to Paris and then Clito, who is one of our other Argentine artists, when they go to Paris and A, first see the works in person and also become aware of this metaphysical interest that Mondrian had, which they did not share, there was a great sense of disappointment. They hated the... Ha you know, the way that the surfaces look handmade, they thought they were messy looking, they were really, really disappointed. And they were very glossy, as it were, in the photograph reproduction. They didn't see the actual painted surface. Exactly. It just looked like black and white shapes. So when the art historian Yves-Alain Bois was working on the Mondrian retrospective, he was saying that it was so hard to find really great Mondrians anymore because people have destroyed by lining the paintings and doing other things, that, in, that beautiful facture of Mondrian's The texture brush, of the surface. The texture of the surface, Mondrian's brush strokes. But when these Argentinian artists went and saw them, you know, relatively soon after they were painted, 
They hated that. They hated the things that we now prize in a good Montreal. The sign of a handmade painting. Yeah. Because, because they were so, you know, utopian in their outlook. They, they thought the Russian um, constructivists were, were their heroes, and they wanted the, the work of art to be a, an agent of social change. As an example of the way these artists worked on the surfaces of their paintings, we turn to a 1949 painting by Alfredo Helito titled Chromatic Rhythms III. Helito was born in Buenos Aires in 1923 and studied there at the National Fine Arts School. He soon became interested in the European constructivist avant-garde and with other young artists formed the Association Arte Concreto Invencion, influenced by the geometric abstraction of the Swiss modernist painter Max Bill. On a visit to Europe in 1953, Elito saw the work of Mondrian for the first time. The painting we are looking at is some 39 inches square. One of the things that um, Andrew and I, when we last talked about this work, discovered um, was that even though um, the abst- these concreters who were really big on publishing manifestos and writing and explaining to the public what they were about, they said relatively little, if not basically nothing, about color. And yet this work, even in the title, has you know, an emphasis on, on color because it means chrom- chrom- chromatic rhythms. Mm-hmm. Um, and the colors are principally secondary colors, is exactly. that right? Exactly. So one of the Which questions... would be radically different than a Mondrian, for example. Exactly. So there's purple, green, blue, there's kind of a turquoise And he loved these olive. very odd, dirty yellows. We haven't done any um, actual analysis of the pigments yet, but under the microscope I could see that um, the yellow here is definitely a mixture of some yellow pigment mixed in with something like black or green that makes it a little dirty. So um, he was definitely very intentionally trying to not just use primary colors that would make everybody else think of Mondrian. And the colors all seem to be about the same width, let's say, about an inch or so, even if they might be different lengths. Yes, they're right? two centimeters. Um, two centimeters, yeah. Because the ground is, is, is a white ground, yes. and it's broken up into to geometric sections, and the black lines that divide these sections one from another are of different widths themselves, right? So there's a kind of a rhythm that comes from the black lines as well as from the color patterns. Right? Yes. And all of the structural lines, as he would have called them, they, um, you know, basically point to beyond the edge of the work. And they were laid down by hand, but they were t- the edges were taped down? What gets that very s- straight so line? What a lot of them used, and Lito, I think, was a particularly um, gifted man in, in that, is they used something called a ruling pen which is an instrument that's generally used or was generally used um, by architects and designers specifically for being able to draw a very straight line. Normally it's used with ink. So these painters had to adapt this particular tool to the use of um, uh, oil paint, which is quite tricky because you have to thin the oil paint to a degree um, that makes it quite um, dilute. So you can actually draw a line without making any blobs or anything. So it, it did require quite a lot of technique. Almost all of them were also graphic designers. That's how most of them made a living because they didn't sell a single work at this period. So it would have been natural for them to use a tool that they knew very well how to use as graphic designers in their paintings. So, so th- this this ruling pen that you described is is marking out the quadrants, the sections on a white ground. And and you, when looking at this, one might if one thought of, that it was lying flat on a surface as opposed to up vertically on a wall, one was looking at 
the, the plan of a city, you know, kind of a modern city where you've got streets going north, south, east, and west, and you've got blocks of development, and the development is represented by these modernist uh, lines of color. Well, that's a fascinating comment, Jim, because this group of artists was very much against the idea of the autonomous easel painting. They saw that as bourgeois and reactionary. They very much did not want their work to be a window onto the world, but to be in relation to its environment in a kind of architectural way. And they moved from paintings like we're looking at now, which are traditional rectangles and squares, very quickly to irregularly framed objects or even colored shapes that are not framed. So that that relationship between the artwork and its architecture and its setting and its world and the rest of the world became really crucial to their work. Right. So the one that we're looking at is paint on canvas. Tom, could you describe the surface and how that surface was achieved? Because it's, it's about as mechanical a surface as one could paint, I would guess. Yeah, I'm... <laughs> There's really no real play on severe texture and pasto differences in gloss that all that, that we see in some of the other work. So this, this to me is is you know a beautifully executed, fairly traditional technique uh-huh. of an oil With on the canvas fine painting. Ground, I guess beneath the surface it's a of the painting. Pre primed. So, it's, so it's commercial. Oh, I see. So it's yeah. very fine, and I think this is a perfect example of them trying, although with different means than the Brazilians would do it. But they were already trying to avoid. Facturas, I think that's what the Russians will call it, impasto, highlights, um, layering, um, you know, anything that kind of enlivens the surface, but with the means that they had been trained to use. But as Pierre was talking a little bit about, what to us is absolutely unique about this is the color palette, that you, it is really hard to think of where else geometric abstraction is going on, where it's entirely in secondary and colors. Dus- and Duisburg did a lot of these odd secondary colors, right? And that's a really interesting thing about this project. When you start looking at art history from a different perspective. So for us, Mondrian is the great geometric painter of this era. And Van Duisburg and someone like Van Tangerloo are relatively minor figures. For these artists... Van Duisburg and particularly Van Dangelo are the major artists and Mondrian is the negative example of someone who does all of these things like the handmadeness, the facture that they don't like. So they, they really are much more influenced by someone like Van Dangelo than they are by Mondrian. Next, we turn to a work by the Uruguayan artist Rod Rothfuss, who was part of a Buenos Aires group of abstract artists formed in 1946 and called Grupo Madi. They emphasized the concrete reality of their materials and often employed irregularly shaped canvases. The reason why people are fascinated by Rothfuss is because very little is actually known about him. He, we know that he comes from a Jewish family that at one point emigrated from somewhere in Europe to Uruguay. So he uh, lived most of his life in Montevideo in Uruguay, which is just a boat ride from Buenos Aires. So when we actually talk about the Argentine 
uh, artists, we at the moment subsume a number of uh, Uruguayan artists in their group because they, you know, because they formed the concrete group. So that's why we talk of them as the concrete group. But, uh, but describe the work to us because it's very different than the painting we're just yes. looking at. So this is a work um, that has been painted on a what is by now a rather fragile um, fiberboard, which is a very inexpensive support to use. Was that because that's all they could afford or because they liked the effect of the fiberboard? Um, I mean, in this particular case, I would say that he probably went for a panel because he could more easily cut it to shape, which would have been much more difficult with canvas. Only Frank Stella, I think, would go later on to the lengths of doing that. It also happens to be very inexpensive, and he did have to make a living in other ways. So I think that was a consideration. And it also gave them that hard, flat surface without the texture of the of the canvas. And it's actually interesting because some artists liked texture and therefore painted on the rough side of the fiberboard or masonite. Most of these artists, though, wanted that smoothness and painted on the the smooth, uninflected side of the fiberboard. I think one of the reasons why this probably stands out also a little bit in our group is because it's, as you can see, from 1955. There's an inscription on the back in ink by the artist which says Pintura 1955. Um, and it also gives us the title, Quadrilongo Amarillo, which means yellow rectangle. And so if you look at the surface, you can see that the, the yellow, the very narrow yellow rectangle on the left-hand side of the painting is what defined the irregular outline of the work. So what we're looking at is the support to which the artist then adhered, one, two, three, four, five, six um, pieces, which are also fiberboard, which he cut into rectangles and squares, which he then painted with uh, the three primary colors and green. So again, there's a, a, a you know an effort being made to show, yes, we're abstract artists, but we're not just acolytes of, uh, of Mondrian. And, and it's on a uh, white ground, which is now not so white. Is it Was it white, intended to be white at the beginning, or did it have always this kind of grayish, yellowish tinge to the whiteness? I can actually show you probably what it uh, looked like, um, because as this work was restored not very long ago, um, the conservator removed one of these elements. And after she was done with the treatment, she decided to use a magnetic uh, mechanism yeah. to put it back. Well, along the edges, you can see some greater, the, yes, whiter so, so lines. this opaque paint, which is underneath the largest green rectangle, at one point was um, a lot more creamy colored than what we see now. But keep in mind that the, the surface has been treated by a conservator at one point. Um, and we, um, because we wondered if this paint layer, because it has been protected from light by this panel for a long time, um, if that paint layer perhaps also has yellowed a little bit more, because oil paint, which is you know a part of that of that paint, it's an alkyd paint, but it contains some oil, does yellow if you don't expose a painting to light. So we asked one of our colleagues at the GCI, Vincent Beltran, to do a micro fading test. Um, and what exactly is that? It's a, a technique where you uh, point a very small light source um, at a paint surface. And it's, you know, and on a minute scale, basically um, fades. It, it, sh it shoots so much light at a material that it, you, you can measure how much it changes color as you do it. And then you can extrapolate from there how much the paint overall 
perhaps has changed, changed color. It's a technique that we use a lot uh, and the profession uses a lot for understanding how light sensitive certain artworks are. And it you know, could be a paint, it could be a feather, it could be any, anywhere where it's a way with the, the, the spot size of the light is, is, is under a, about a millimeter in diameter. So you can see where the, where the light's going, but the amount of fading you measure is less than the eye can detect. So it's in effect a non-destructive technique. By doing this, this very quick test, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a case of minutes. You actually shine this, this bright light. You get a very good sense of roughly what color it would have been and how rapidly that, that uh -huh. discoloration. So the entire happened. surface would have been rather consistently this creamy color. And this now become kind of cloudy over the course because this is now 60 years later. Interventional uh, conservation treatment. So um, the paint, yes, the paint surface originally would have been much more homogenous, and it would have been a bit shinier as well because I think the surface texture changed with that conservation. It's almost treatment. enamel in that, that exactly, part. Exactly, yeah, because it's it's an alkyd paint what he used, um, and so originally it would have been, you know, devoid of brushwork, uh, more homogenous and cr slightly creamy color, but not as dark as what we uh -huh. see in our. Underwear. What about the colored uh, rectangles? Are they the color that they were in 1955, or have they changed as I well? I doubt it because it seems to me that there's quite a thick layer of varnish on top of the paint. Um, the paint, I also, you know, we found that it's also an alkyd paint, and you can see, for example, over here in this very corner, where there's an abrasion, you can see that the original color underneath the varnish is actually a bit more intense in color and the same is also true for the yellow um, but we would not consider ever if this was our work would never consider doing a treatment as in removing the varnish because the the black outlines on these elements were painted on top so the artist first painted the color then varnished it and then painted the black paint so there's no way that you would safely be able to remove this discolored varnish so i think that's going to be always part of the work and and was this artist as much a craftsman as the painter that we have been talking about which is to say did craftsmanship matter to them in this particular case, it's very difficult to say because there are essentially only two or three works by this artist that survived that we feel comfortable were really made by him. The other work by him, which is even earlier than this one, is from 46, which is called Harlequin, is also in the Cisneros collection. And it's painted on a very, very rough piece of burlap. It has an irregular outline and it looks you know, much, much more handmade, rough than any modern could ever aspire to. And that was nine years earlier than this. Yes, it was a rapid exactly. transformation yes. in those nine years in this yeah. work. But since we have so little to go on, it would be very hard to extrapolate for, you know, for what was with Lito, who, you know, went on to have a long career. He died in the 90s and he developed his work in many different other directions. It would be easier to say, and yes, for him, craft mattered a lot. With him, I don't think we have enough to really... But what we can, I think... Point two is the varnishing, the gloss is a, another way of hiding the sense of the handmade, the brush stroke. And one of the interesting things between Rotfus and some of the other Argentinians was an argument over how to construct a work of art. So Rotfus, you'll see where you could plan out that these shapes, these seven shapes from very, very thin polygons to more regular squares are based on a golden mean. So they... So there's a system. So there is a system to his work 
which is not true, the others believed, many of the others believed that any of these systems should be rejected for a new kind of invention and that they wanted to break with Western traditions where the golden mean and other things came into play. And so that was an argument, even though the works look very much alike to us today, they certainly were not all of the same mind at the time. The next thing we looked at was a 1956 work by Leija Clark. I noted that its paint colors, airplane gray, reddish brown, pale green, seemed quite deliberate, as if they were making a statement of sorts. That, that's interesting because if, you know, she would then basically switch to black and white and never go back to any color in her work. Um, but I think one, one of the reasons... Is that because she denied the inherent attractiveness of color? Because this seems to be anti-color. You know, this seems to be anti-color. This is putting color together in such a way as to not attract attention to yeah. it as color. Well, I think one of the things that we as conservatives always think about is how um, what happens to the color palette of an artist when he or she chooses to use with certain uh, to work with certain materials. And this particular work was made with nitrocellulose paints, which we think were probably originally meant to be car paints. Um, and the paint was also sprayed. So the paint was, it was the, sprayed onto this. It was sprayed exactly. The, so it, it seems to be canvases within canvases, or or cut pieces of wood within cut pieces of wood so that the, the thing is put together from multiple pieces. Is that correct? They're actually uh, panels. They're cedar panels, which uh, you can smell. Um, so you can see and that you, can you see basically have an inset. It's all put together in set. Yeah. Yes, which is held down by another strip of wood. It gives a kind of industrial look to it. I mean, the, the has a kind of hard-edged surface to it so that it seems to be manifestly made, whereas the others are pictures yeah. of, of something, representations of some manifest. This is of, of their making. This is actually emphatically made. Well, Lijia Clark was uh, interested in something which she called the organic line. And, and these pieces um, de- you know, develop this idea of the organic line that, it, that also can just exist in space by having, as you do here, two colors, a butt, but there's a, a space in between them, and that creates a line in of itself. So this is, you know, in her work, uh, one step in a long uh, evolution where she's working with the line in many, many different ways. Do you know what she meant by organic? Because the look of the painting is anything but organic. I mean, it looks like it's not grown from uh, a seed, but rather it's something that has been manufactured, two pieces put together, hammered tightly together by some industrial process. Yeah. If I've understood her correctly, what she meant by organic line is that she, you know, in in the very beginning when she started out as a painter, she was fascinated by stairways, by doors, by windows, by any delineation between one space and another. And uh, she, as time went by, and as she became more and more interested in what Max Bill was doing. A Swiss painter. A Swiss painter who trained at the Bauhaus. Who comes to, at least to, to Venezuela, maybe to Brazil as well. Especially no? to Brazil. He Especially spent a lot of time Brazil. in Brazil. Uh-huh. He was very much lauded for his work. And he's of the same generation, precisely? Or, uh, he's or a, little older, a little bit older. Uh, but the, Bill is such an important figure for all of them. He trained himself at the Bauhaus, but he was sort of the, the ideal um, bridge figure between them and the European tradition, but because he in his own work was so interested in industrial design and how you make something reproducible, he, you know, he, he was considered by many of them a father figure in, in that way. And so I think with 
the presence of Bill and this encouragement that they received in uh, in their endeavor to be as concrete as possible in their work. Concrete meaning, you know, not subjective, non-metaphysical, non. So following um, the the way that concrete was defined in the uh, Art Concrete Manifesto by Van Duisburg, she also then. DJ Clark decides at one point that hand painting a line is no good, that it, it still denotes a, a subjective, not very interesting mode of communication. And she discovers many other ways of making a line. There's this beautiful quote by Barnett Newman where he says that he felt free at one point to make any kind of line. And I think uh, DJ Clark felt uh, the same way. And she later on would then create lines by cutting into panels. You know, it, it, she would never really go back and do anything less mechanical than this, but but basically by just creating a, a space between two panels and creating a line that way. When you look at the two panels, the line is not truly straight anymore. And whether it was originally a straight line or not, certainly the line is formed by the two panels not... And that line is a shadow yeah. of space in there, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think... Hello, I'm sorry to interrupt no, you. Um, you know, one, one thing that we as conservatives think about a lot is if you decide to use car paints, you are mu you're a lot more limited in what kinds of hues you can use. So if this palette wouldn't have been to her liking, of course she wouldn't have used them, but by, by choosing to work with something industrial, she also agreed to using something that is quite opaque. Oil is much more transparent, so you can layer in the way that you can't with opaque paints. Um, and you, you know, I suppose to some degree you can you could mix a green with a brown, but but you know you will not be able to create a really pure hue if you use these. And, and that was intentional on her part. That's what attracted her to the paint, huh? Certainly accepted yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. It's very hard to answer that question, Jim, about you know what an artist intended. I mean, you you, you can you can try and look at readings and everything, but I think Pierre was right. This this was a. Um, a surface quality that was used and she accepted it. And I think what's one of the things that we found with the very preliminary investigation in this painting is that it's, it's one thing to say we found what we think is a car paint compared to an oil paint, but different paints need, um, often need very different types of application. I and mean, in this case in particular, uh, it's, a, it's a very, very fluid paint. It's very runny. It's designed to dry very quickly. And the very best applications of a car is to have the paint sprayed. And to prevent you know, runs of paints and drips, it has to be sprayed very, very thinly and very, very many layers. And we, and we see this in this painting. Um, what, it's possible to look at um, layer structure in, 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 in works of arts. A fragment is literally removed and embedded in a resin. It's then turned 90 degrees on its side, so you're looking uh, the, looking down through the actual layers of the paint as they've been put on top of each other. And then by sanding, grinding, you can get this very, very smooth surface. When you look through a microscope, you see perfectly the layer structure, the order in which the layers were uh, applied. And you see very clearly things like um, if, if, if a paint can re be redissolved when, when, when another layer is put on top. So when Pierre was talking about nitrocellulose can't be applied brushed on top of the other. That's because if, if, if you brush it, you redissolve the, the, the layer beneath it. Um, but if you spray it, then, then, then you don't actually have a physical contact. And you, and you can build up a beautiful, opaque, glossy layer. Uh, and I guess in, you, you in, could in also determine whether this uh, dark green or this olive green, uh, you know, whether they, they were always that, those two separate greens or yeah. whether they were different greens that turned to this curtain color that we're looking at. Um, in this particular case, actually, we could see in ultraviolet light 
based on the different degrees to which uh, materials fluoresce, that there was a different shape under parts of the light green, uh, what's now light green and the brown. And when I took a cross section here at the intersection, I could see that there's a bright pink underneath. A bright pink? Yeah. Goodness gracious. I haven't, you know, done any more analysis on it. I don't know if it's also nitrocellulose or something else, but it's it's startling. Wow. Elijah Clark doesn't seem like a pink girl. No. You know <laughs> that, I mean, that's something we've been finding in on many of the works where we've been looking. Not You don't always have to take a cross-section. You can literally look through a microscope and you often do see very different colors beneath the existing you know, color that you'll see on, on, on top. This is true of both the Argentinian and the Brazilian artists. So that's one of the really nice things we're piecing together. If, if we can figure out, um, you know, whether some of these works were, were, would look very, very different and then, then, then the artist would have actually gone on and, and changed colors or this was a very rapid, uh, you know, playing with color as he or she were working with composition. Uh, but it's coming up quite, quite a bit and often the colors are very different uh, to what you're seeing on the surface. Now, I think we've come to a, a good place to stop, and I'll ask you each something uh, about the next steps, because we want to come back and to see what you've learned or what questions you've now are, are pursuing, uh, because this is the nature of an exhibition. The exhibition begins with a set of presumptions and a set of issues that one wants to explore, and in the process of exploring these presumptions, these issues, others pop up and one learns more in the process. Uh, what's the next step uh, in, in the exhibition? I think the... The next step in the exhibition is doing that really difficult thing of just of making choices about what we're trying to show. We have two galleries. It's not a big exhibition. We have 47 odd works to choose from. And we're just trying to figure out the themes that we really want to focus in on. Um, the exhibition will have to function Are as historical a, themes uh, and, and technical themes, themes too. Yes. I mean, we've been talking about quite a few of those questions today, but in the setting of an exhibition, you can really only choose one or two and, and do those in depth. I think some of the things like the various ways that the, the sharp heads, the straight lines were, were being drawn is something that we, we can probably talk about quite visually. Andrew, what about you? Well, I think one of the major questions is how this work should be displayed. These artists clearly did not want their work to be thought of as easel paintings hung at eye level, which is now, you know, sort of standard museum practice. Do you recreate what they historically did, sometimes hanging things by wires or other things, or do you give a flavor of that without making it seem like a ersatz historical recreation? I think that's one of the main questions. And, and Pia, we started this podcast by talking about the title of the exhibition. You, you, you defended yourself by saying it's a working title. Do you anticipate having a title next time we talk? <laughs> I think we must. <laughs> no, definitely, because I, as Tom also said, I've, um, I'm doing the actual examinations of the works, and I, um, I've only done half of them, so I feel under a lot of pressure to get to the end of that and then also write an essay for the exhibition catalogue and I very you know I've, I know that I will feel a lot more comfortable saying what I think the overarching theme is once I really looked at everything yeah yeah I'm sure okay Pia Gottschaller Tom Lerner Andrew Perchek thank you very much we'll see you in a few weeks we'll pick up this conversation in the next part of the series when I check in to see how the exhibition is progressing and most importantly, to find out whether Tom, P, and Andrew have settled on the exhibition title. Our theme music comes from the Dharma at Big Sur, 
composed by John Adams for the opening of the Walt Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles in 2003. It is licensed with permission from Hendon Music. Look for new episodes of Art and Ideas every other Wednesday. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and SoundCloud, or visit getty.edu slash podcasts for more resources. Thanks for listening. Thank you.